the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. On today's episode, we travel around the world of hospitality investing. We talk with Carlos Rodriguez, the founder, president, and COO of Driftwood Capital, one of the U.S.'s leading hospitality sponsors with over $3 billion in hospitality assets under management. They found a way to do both the traditional things in real estate and investing and development well, and complement that with an innovative strategy to bring over 1,200 accredited investors on their platform as they find ways to improve how sponsors can access deals and capital. Carlos and I had a fascinating discussion about real estate and private markets. We covered how hospitality investing was impacted by COVID and how Driftwood weathered the storm, lessons learned from operating through COVID, why location, location, location rings true in real estate investing, how the millennial traveler and work from home have impacted hospitality investing, the most surprising things in real estate investing over the past few years, and how technology is impacting real estate investing. Thanks, Carlos, for coming on the show to share your insights and wisdom about hospitality investing. We hope you enjoy. We're going mainstream. Carlos, welcome to the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Michael. Pleasure to have you. I think you have such a fascinating perspective on the world of investing and through the lens of the real estate world, hospitality, an industry that's obviously gone through a lot over the past few years. Would love to hear, and I'm sure because there's so many different factors that go into this, but what's your take on the real estate space right now? We have gone through a lot, obviously, and, and still going through that. COVID didn't spare any sector, but hospitality was hit hardest. But it also showed the resilience. We're back to 2019 numbers, and that's with still a lot of demand sectors growing, and we can get into that a little bit later. I think generally we've seen real estate recover, however, affected today by what's happening with interest rates. I think to have such a sizable jump in a sector that is highly levered in general is always a challenge, and it presents unique opportunities. And there's also changes in supply and demand dynamics that add to this, both the challenges and the opportunities. I think in general, real estate is a great product. We're excited about what it means for hospitality today. You can't paint it with a broad brush. And I think we're at a point today where we're seeing hospitality as the exciting uh, opportunity given where values are. Why hospitality right now then? Why hospitality right now? Well, there hasn't been supply since COVID. In fact, in some markets, negative supply. And when you talk about real estate, you, you have to talk about supply and demand. When you look on the demand side, hospitality, as I mentioned, you, know, you look at our portfolio across the states, generally back to 2019 adjusted for inflation. That's without the continued growth that we're seeing in corporate and group segments and without international travel yet back to pre-pandemic levels. So there's a lot of potential for the continued growth of hospitality given that imbalance. And when you're looking at construction costs and the timeframes, that's also been challenged during COVID. We're looking at something where values did not accelerate. Obviously, values were depressed. Fundamentals had to recover. You had to, to make it this far in terms of ownership of the asset and weathering the storm. And at this point, I think that there's a bid ass spread precisely because of what's happening with broader capital markets. Ho hoteliers that don't want to recognize a differential in value due to the capital markets are holding on to the best that they can. But there's going to be some dislocation because of interest rates, because of needing to reinvest in the property and not having enough capital. And that's what you know makes it an exciting 24. You have Good long-term demand from what we're seeing of the resiliency of travel. A lot of people post-COVID thought that we wouldn't be back to these numbers until 2024, 25. We're here end of 23. And that's with a lot of runway to go. So despite a potential business casual recession, I think we talked about that at our year-end event, 
with the Wells Fargo Economist, it's the economy remains strong, and especially in the upper upscale segment that we play in. And for those reasons, very excited for what's ahead. How much has travel picked up because of business travel versus people traveling for pleasure? Yeah, interesting stats. Uh, leisure in 2023 is expected to end 5% above where 2019 was in terms of total travel spend on leisure. When you look at that leisure segment, it really shot up and it continues. The projections significantly higher, and that's adjusted for inflation. We had inflation north of 20%. So sizable jump in terms of dollar spend from the leisure segment and, and the same for actual volume. But when you look at business and within business, corporate, transient, group, you're looking at still lagging 2019 on spend. We've talked about where corporate travel, is it coming back fully, is it not? That was obviously a lag, but the growth since the bottom has been significant and, and we're continuing to see that gain. With, with the group segment, usually longer booking windows, and so that's been also reset and finally starting to normalize. I think this year, we're expecting another sizable jump. It should be indexing close to 100 in, in the next year or two, what with leisure growing. And at the same time, if you're looking between domestic and international, Domestic filled that gap almost completely. We're only at 75% international, both leisure and corporate. So a lot of runway there when we look at international markets for the U.S. One thing I can think of is, wow, did people really want to get out of their houses after COVID? (laughs) (laughs) There was definitely that revenge travel, pent-up demand. And it had always been the adage that leisure was more fickle and that business was that steady eddy player in, in hospitality. And I think it proved that leisure is required. <laughs> People need to get out of the home. And it, it wasn't more true than COVID. I mean, that summer, especially in Florida, we luckily had a lot of uh, exposure to Florida and other Sunbelt states. So our portfolio fared better than most post-COVID. That recovery was incredible to see. And we're seeing some normalization now. How much has the nature of travel changed I'll mention two of probably a number of trends, but one is obviously people now work either remote or hybrid remote in more cases than pre-COVID. So there may be this desire for the workcation type of travel. And certainly younger people tend to seem to want to travel more or work from a different location. How have some of those trends shaped travel, whether that's for work or play? I think... As we've seen, COVID really accelerated certain trends. The trend of flexible work trips and and being able to connect remotely via Zoom, that that was happening. We we were focusing on this concept of leisure and lifestyle for hotels going pre-COVID. I think that that's where the change of taste and preferences of experiential and customizable, that was all there. It's accelerated to an incredible degree, and it's allowing for the worker to go on a vacation, spend time connected with the office, then spend time with his family. So they're bringing their family with them on the trips. If it's not, if it's work trip only, it's typically that they've been remote for a while and now they're flying into HQ uh, because they're working in different parts of the world and that makes it easier. So we've seen a rise in occupancy during what typically challenge days of the week. And so I think that we've seen a lot of opportunity there shoulder nights, Mondays, et cetera, pick up Thursdays into the weekend. And I think you just need the right product to cater to that consumer. You mentioned the Sun Belt being an area, particularly Florida, where you have a number of properties on the hotel side, but you have properties all over the country, some even outside of uh, US mainland. I would love to hear how your portfolio has changed over recent years. And also, you mentioned, as we've talked in the past about location, 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 how much of current environment is a tale of two cities? Is it certain locations that are more important, more attractive and generating better returns from an investment perspective versus others? Our portfolio has primarily been in the US. We focus nationally. We really go into any market and that can be tertiary markets versus urban core. I think that when we talk about location, I think within those, it's all that what are the micro factors? What is the the, the rationale for going into a specific market and location? How, how high are the barriers to entry? What is the unique value proposition? We have something in the middle of the country that's miles from anything on this beautiful lake, and it does extremely well from drive-to locations everywhere. 
same in urban locations, resorts. We have operated internationally. I'm originally from Costa Rica, as in my family. I think my grandfather was one of the first franchisees of a Holiday Inn in Latin America uh, with his hotel in Costa Rica that kind of started my family in the hotel business. It's just been interesting because initially my dad came to Miami to help develop uh, brands for IHG, uh, Intercontinental Hotel Group, the, the parent of Holiday Inn. That was with the intent of showcasing them to bring them to developers in Latin America and grow their franchise business down there. As he started developing here in the States, he realized uh, how much easier it was for everything to develop, to access capital, to finance a project, to exit the opportunities later on if it was a sale. And that unique aspect of, of the United States is, is what makes hospitality so attractive from foreign investors into here and why we scale primarily in the U.S. However, we're seeing some inter interesting opportunities internationally. We've operated in the Caribbean. We're going to continue to grow our presence there. But in terms of managing investments, heavy U.S. base. It's fascinating to hear about why you think the U.S. is easier to build, develop, and invest into from a hospitality perspective. I'd love to dive deeper into that. Walk us through how a transaction works in this space and why the U.S. capital markets, hospitality space might be easier to develop in or invest in, like you said. I think we talked about it when we uh, brought up uh, COVID and the resiliency of just domestic travel alone and, and businesses uh, along with leisure filling up what was then a lack of international and still being able to manage. I think that there's just such a uh, breadth and depth to the U.S. that you don't have in other countries. It's heavy on the leisure-only side in, in certain markets. Again, in different countries, I think in Europe, you have that business evolved and others, uh, it's been growing. But from a capital markets perspective, I think it's what's most interesting, and that applies across any commercial real estate industry. In Latin America, it's typically family-owned businesses, and they have a relationship with a bank to get capitalized at a much smaller rate because banks aren't packaging this into portfolios and selling off the debt into secondaries. I think that the fact that you have CMBS in the US, the fact that you have all of these different larger institutions playing a role within capital markets in commercial real estate is such a difference maker from access and ease of capital. And then from the development side, there's just the rules of the game, the speed at which you can process everything. I think that that all changes. But capital markets being one of the largest factors. Groups have talked about regional packaging in Latin America and other parts of the world to create these type of capital markets dynamics. And because of the unique politics of each country, it becomes challenging. You talk about kind of the development of capital markets, particularly in the US and the real estate space. You've developed a pretty innovative way of both structuring deals and also the types of investors that you're working with at Driftwood. How has the types of capital that you access changed and evolved over time? And how will it continue to evolve in the real estate space? 2012 Jobs Act um, was a game changer for mass marketing, the accredited investor, 506C, Reg D opportunities. I think before that, there was a lot of friends and family with the 506B Reg D allowance. And before that, there was also tenants in common, which was a form of syndication, but not in the structure of GPLP. When we saw the Jobs Act pass in 2012, uh, we saw the opportunity to go beyond the friends and family space. And at the same time, there's a wealth of information on how to access alternatives. I think we talked about it when in various settings, how we've seen that access to alts proliferate. For us, Tapping into that extended friends and family proved that there was a very deep and wide network uh, of people looking to access this type of product that they weren't finding within their portfolio, within their typical uh, financially advised 60-40 uh, structure. As we started to raise, one of the biggest challenges was the format because we had to raise capital in advance of closing on a deal. And trying to educate that investor, you have to keep it a small group and bigger tickets. What we did that was innovative, in certain instances, you have the evolution of platforms that kind of played a role to help sponsors bridge that gap, if you will. We've leveraged a lot of those platforms. But for us, 
what we decided to do was create evergreen funds. We created an acquisitions, development, and lending evergreen fund structure, allowing us to span the gamut of product within our niche vertical of hospitality with our operating arm and leverage that track record and experience in finding the opportunities, but having the capital ready to deploy across all of those. And that evergreen fund then would create syndications post-closing of a deal, whether it be a new acquisition, a land site, or a loan that we just extended. We would then package and syndicate that specific opportunity. We could do that for a $50,000 check. And we could leverage our own marketing efforts, 506E accredited investor, as well as the relationships that we've had to bring in different aggregators, family offices, et cetera, as well as platforms or larger networks that we can engage with. Like today, we're talking to BDs and, and RIAs that can average that product. That combination of capital sources, capital channels has really evolved over the last 10 years. We've been at the forefront of that as a mid-level GP, I think really focusing on our niche sector and scaling that and becoming one of the biggest players in our space, which traditionally we had been an operator serving institutional investor asset managers only. So I think that that's the biggest difference in the last 10 years. How do you think this space is going to evolve now that there are more ways for the individual investor or the wealth manager to access real estate investments easily? Will things change a lot now? Will things change? I mean, things have already started to change with the ease of access. At the end of the day, deal making is still challenging. And as I noted, I think the innovation of creating that capital arm that allowed us to go out and deploy first and then syndicate was unique. And I think that what's happening today is that there is potentially a lot of noise out there as it relates to product and education and trust because investors don't know where to go. They're seeing Instagram ads that are telling them, here's this opportunity and that opportunity. And everywhere you look, I think that there's a different way to, to play, which is great for the sector. But I think from there, the distilling of this information is critical to really make it meaningful and, and to find the right players. How would you map out this space? You mentioned there are large institutional investors, there are mid-sized sponsors like yourself, and there are platforms. How does it all fit together? At the end of the day, as a sponsor, you're thinking, how do you capitalize the entirety of that deal to obviously maximize the return, but to also make sure that you're doing things in an efficient manner? Sometimes speed is of the essence, and you're willing to give up some of that profit in order to place a deal quickly versus having the ability to take a little bit longer with the product and place it to a new audience, a retail audience. And when I say retail, uh, accredited retail. And I think it's changing the game. Since you have different outlets, I think it puts more pressure on the pockets of capital that have traditionally had that moat where it's only been through them in terms of governance and, and co-investing, et cetera. I, I think that's something that's favoring the sponsor. During COVID, we saw the rise, for example, of CrowdStreet that had placed over a billion dollars. But then post-COVID, I think it, it started to shift away. And we've seen some challenges of the platforms. If you're sitting there as a sponsor, you're saying, I just want to place it as best I can. Whichever channel is fitting, the more channels, the better. You just need to be able to deal with the different channels and how to manage them and access them. And that's been challenging to date. And I think that's where technology plays a, a significant role. Where do you think capital's going to come from in the future? Is it going to come from the more institutional channels, larger funds, even larger LPs like the sovereigns, the pensions, the endowments who have the size to be able to put capital to work and do this in an institutional way? Or is it going to come from the individual investor channel? Yeah, when we talk individual investor channel, there's both direct and indirect. I think that's the channel that is most exciting, not to take away from the institutional channel, which is massive, but I mean most exciting because it's so dynamic. And from the indirect side, from our perspective, we're talking about through RIAs and wealth advisors, and that growth is significant. I think that everyone is realizing the potential from that segment and you're seeing more and more of the individual investors saying, how do I control my investments? There's a lot of education out there that's helping them do that. And they still need that relationship with their advisor. However, there's ability to access all this different product from both the investor and the advisor. So I think there's this mutual understanding where 
for a little bit, the last few years, we saw a lot of individuals come to us directly. And now we're seeing advisors say, hey, we've heard of you guys. There's consolidation in the advisory space. There's more education and access and tools that they can continue to earn fees on that investment, which always helps. And we're seeing that we'll unlock a, a massive market potential and we'll shift how institutions think about things too, because they are also shifting to that channel. So then you're saying, okay, what is that new way to shape the deals? And that's something that I'm excited about because as a sponsor, we think of things holistically and that includes the debt side. I think that there's a lot of interesting products from a private credit side. And we instituted the mezzanine lending as a facility because we saw that investors really wanted that coupon. And we thought it was a great risk-adjusted return to offer it in our portfolio and to also gain a lot of exposure in a broader market. So the more that credit becomes a play, now you're talking about equity credit within commercial real estate, a tangible asset that people can touch and feel, a gateway to alternative for investors. From our perspective, that is very exciting. The one challenge is how do we communicate properly? How do we report properly to these investors that are coming through these new formats, whether it's uh, directly or indirectly, it's not the same relationships where you know that the gatekeepers in the institution world understand and can speak your language as it relates to deals and how to structure and how to weather different challenges that come up. But I think that's happening. And there's a big focus of the industry. We've heard a lot on your podcast. So that's exciting as well. You're bringing up a really important point about the alt space and the evolution of the alt space with the advent of technology coming to it and helping more investors understand alts, have it be accessible, and then the packaging of it, not just on the access and execution side, but on the post-investment side. I want to get to that a little later because there's a lot to talk about there and also related to some of the things that you're doing on the technology side, which are pretty innovative. First, though, I want to touch on something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is real estate being tangible. It's something people can touch and feel. One trend we've observed in the alt space and the data supports it, there's a Lanson study that shows how younger investors are really interested in alternatives, particularly assets that they are passionate about. The kind of end of the spectrum would be things like collectibles, sports cards, wine, art, <laughs> et cetera. Uh, real estate's obviously not that, but there is something interesting in that data, which is that younger investors in particular want to invest in things that they feel connected to or care about. How much do you think real estate investing, in particular hospitality, where people can go to a place and experience that place. How much are those two things interlinked where there's an experience they can touch and feel, but then they can invest in something that they can also tangibly understand, maybe even go to? I think it's significant. Just to take a look at, at our platform, obviously we have the track record in hospitality. We have the returns over different cycles that have justified that. There's a trusted name there, but We've been able to gain recently over a thousand investors that have come to us, a lot, most of them directly. I think that we've started to grow the indirect channels. And that's namely because not only are we pitching the, the solidarity of, of real estate, something tangible, bricks and mortar that they understand, the track record, et cetera, but this element that they've been to or they want to go to the locations that we're in, that they can see a hotel that we have on a mountainside that has ski access, and they're excited to go there so they, they can resonate with the investing side. So I think that goes back to the experiential. We've seen that in terms of just the demand for travel alone. When you look at the makeup of the consumer today, the amount of people that would spend more on experiences versus material goods is growing exponentially. It touches on that people want to travel, so they connect with that. They want to experience certain things and they can visualize themselves in our products and therefore, I think, makes it easier for them to invest in something. You always want to invest in something that you believe in. When it's too abstract, it's challenging. That's one of the reasons that we also like having a deal-by-deal -deal aspect, even though we tell people diversification within a portfolio, you can construct that diversification with assembling various individual deals. So it creates that flexible component. But there's something direct that they say, I know that market. I like that asset. I already have diversification XYZ. Let me focus on this opportunity. You're, you're bringing up a really interesting point around the concept of investing in things people know and understand. 
how far will the hotel industry take this? And just to put some images or thoughts in people's minds, people like consuming things from places that they've invested in. There's data that shows that when people invest in a certain company, they're more likely to purchase goods from that company, right? Do you think we'd ever get to a point where at checkout at a hotel, there'd be a QR code where people could say, hey, I could invest in this hotel. And then you effectively crowdfunded because people had an amazing stay at that hotel. You think we'll ever get to that kind of connectivity between the experience and the investment? Absolutely. I think that we're a lot closer than a lot of people realize. That's one of the things that uh, definitely drives me. I, I want to be able to create that for investors and for individuals. There's obviously regulation that you have to work through. And we've seen that evolution because of the change in technology, et cetera. We've seen what has happened with the blockchain technology and crypto and the facility. That's all in one spectrum. But it, it is all kind of going in that direction of being able to seamlessly transact on something and trust it because it is enabled via technology. And there is now an ecosystem that's built and trusted around that. And I think that's important. As that evolves, the technologies there, we already have the ability to access our platform and invest directly, sign a few subdocs, approve accreditation, validate that, go through the process. It used to be amazing to me where I would think that a sizable investor in our portfolio, I would have had an, a significant interaction with prior to them investing. And that's no longer the case. And that fascinates me. We've put opportunities online for investing. They're syndicating within hours with a webinar and a recording. It just goes to show you how far we've come and how much potential there is, especially in a product like hospitality, because you are um, reaching and touching so many people that are staying there. And I would love it to be a local experience. I think that drives the, the growth of the business. I think that there's more understanding and, uh, from an investor side, if they know the product and they consume it, better feedback as well from a guest staying there that says, I like XYZ. I'd love to see this in a hotel. By the way, I'm also an investor. That's fun to have. I think you're hitting on a, a, a trend that's really part of Alco's mainstream, particularly when it gets to things like investing in sports teams, which is now accessible to the crowd. In certain cases, there are platforms that are making that available, but that's kind of like this concept of investing in something that you care about, but then by investing in it, you're going to be more likely to be a fan of it and be a champion of it to others. I think that's a fascinating concept. On that point, because you're talking about hospitality investing. What's the case for investing in hospitality? That's a great question. I think I mentioned I started my career at LNR, now Starwood, and we got to see hospitality through the broader lens of commercial real estate, CMBS, bond buying, et cetera. And we had a, a small team dedicated to hospitality. And I eventually rotated into that group. It was amazing to see how, when you look at it from a commercial real estate perspective, so many of the same factors, but it has that operating layer. So many people just say, oh, it's an operating business. That's something totally different. It's daily leases. There's definitely an operator dynamic, which if you do it right, which is the platform that we have on the management side, it creates arbitrage opportunities. So I just see that as additional arbitrage in the space when you know what you're doing and you can do it correctly. And then you're leveraging the commercial real estate aspect, which, as we mentioned, you talk about location, supply, demand, good yield. I think for investors, you're looking at cap rates that traditionally are from as low as 5%, but up to 12%. Uh, so you're averaging much higher cap rates than, than in multifamily, industrial, other sectors, at least today. Uh, on average, you know that you're buying the the income, but you have so many levers to pull from the operations to drive and outperform that value. Uh, I think that's what's fascinating, especially with the advent of technology. You're going to see continued improvement in operating margins on various levels. I and mean, I think better connectivity with the guests, the demand curve, as we talked about, experiential spend versus consumer good has scaled significantly. The connectivity of travel and the demand for travel, I mean, you're talking about the bottlenecks being airports, but the connectivity everywhere, it's changed so much over the last 10 years, and that's just going to continue to grow exponentially. When you're seeing the dynamics of limited supply, all of the long-term demand factors at play, the right components within commercial real estate of good yield in play plus upside and stability in terms of typical cap rate stability, and then being able to layer in the operational arbitrage, it's very exciting. One of the things I, I didn't touch on from 
commercial real estate, just generally, you're talking about uh, advantages on taxes uh, when you talk about being able to uh, depreciate on an accelerated schedule, especially for hospitality. So I think that even adds an, an additional component there when ultimately you're exiting on a longer term. So it's typically longer term capital gains upon exit. The ability to sell is still there. And you have that moat from operational knowledge. So all of those factors make it interesting from hospitality and just broader commercial real estate as well. So there's obviously large players getting larger, right? The Blackstones of the world have massive real estate platforms. They have BREIT, which has raised significant amounts of capital. There's massive firms in this space. How much does size matter when it comes to real estate investing, but then hospitality in particular? It's interesting from the hospitality industry that a lot of people still don't realize that Hilton's, Marriott's, ISG, all of the franchisors, that's what they are. They operate or offer operations to hotel owners, but in the US, over 90% are third-party managed. This is a true franchise business, and it is something that it takes that expertise to do. So when you look at the institutional players, they're typically looking for an operator to bring them deals or at least to come in and give them assessments. There's that component. Then there's the development component which if you're a developer, that's typically uh, an, another institutional type partner, or they may have a company that does that, but not directly. And your relationships with the brands are more significant in many ways because you're bringing new product of theirs to the table. So I think that there's this inherent, especially in hospitality, not commercial real estate, but in, in this sector, uh, a need for institutional players to partner with or to go to owner, operator, developers uh, for that expertise and that ability to access the deal flow, to leverage the brands, to underwrite the deal properly, scale isn't the only determining factor. How much has something like Airbnb changed the hospitality space? I feel like I can't I, I can't go through this podcast without asking about that. Uh, I love the question. It's one that we get from our individual investors as they're looking at our opportunities and people in the industry talk about it and the impact. It's another segment. At the end of the day, and this is when we talk about hospitality relative to other commercial real estate, like multifamily, uh, you're going to need to stay in a physical location. You can do many other things, but you can't yet teleport. You may be down 30 years from now, we'll be talking about that. But at the current time, staying somewhere is critical. So then the question is, where am I staying? And what is that difference in the product? And Airbnb provides a totally different experience. Um, it's not one that you can say completely replaces hotels, uh, like the way Uber did primarily with taxis, because you're talking about tapping into a market of homeowners that wants to open up its doors to its home, which has all its uniqueness and quirkiness to a traveler and their family. So at first it brought in a totally new segment that didn't travel. And in actually certain smaller markets that had compression, which we always love in hotel space, we talk about compression when you have big events in the city, et cetera, sporting events, uh, cultural, whatever it may be, you now have more people staying in that market because homes opened. And where are they going? They're going to where the events are being held. They're at the uh, restaurants of the hotels, at the conference center space, et cetera. Generally, when you talk about hotels, there's a whole classifications of hotels, extended stay, which is still, despite Airbnb, one of the hottest growing segments. It just shows you within hospitality, that is not a direct competitor. Uh, I think that what we're seeing the most opportunities is in the smaller full serve hotels that cater to a diverse set of consumers that have the ability to create that unique experiential feel without having it you know, be this cold, large box, you're able to outperform on service and, and create those spaces where people are coming to consume, whether it's in the event space or restaurants or rooftop lounge or whatever it may be. Personal service is going to be critical even with technology. And that's a little bit of the contrarian play. A lot of people, are, when you talk about hospitality, focus on what is the least operationally intensive. However, it becomes a more crowded play and not as many levers to pull because you've already created a leaner operation. So for us, it's where can you extract the most value and bring all of the relevancy of the consumer today to that proposition? So are you saying that Airbnb, in a sense, 
unlike maybe Uber as a replacement or Lyft as a replacement for taxis, actually has brought more to the market. So it's created other opportunities for many of these hotel operators. There is going to be an effect and it, it does take away from hotels in certain aspects, but generally it has brought a new traveler. Typically the business traveler isn't staying there. You're talking about a, a different product. And I think I saw where Airbnb was positioning to a, a different travel segment. They started to go ultra luxe and that has a place as well, but a lot of people were getting priced out and that was Airbnb's initial core. But again, neither of those were really where we play in the upper upscale uh, segmentation. The demand for that segmentation in hospitality is incredible. When we think about things on a total rev par basis, revenue per available room, uh, it used to be heads and beds. And hotels are only about that. They don't do anything else that, that well. Now we're thinking of total rev par, all of the ancillaries, the amazing cocktail bar, the awesome flex lounge space. We have these new lifestyle hotels that we're doing yoga on the rooftop and it doubles as your wedding venue. And then you have your unique boardrooms that can then flex into a, a social wedding venue. So we're just seeing so many opportunities to create that special experience for the guests. We talked about the experiential travel and in one hotel, multifaceted. And that's it's where we focus today. It sounds like hotel operators try to create more unique, memorable experiences. I actually recently saw this on commercial. I think it was the hotel sponsor for, for the NFL. It may have been Holiday Inn or something. But they try to make it all about the experience of being at the hotel. I think they showed the room once. So it was all about all the activities <laughs> you could do. I think the Hoxton Hotel chain, they have co-working spaces, right? It's fascinating to see that. And I guess where that brings me is how should hotel operators think about this going forward? Because I do think a lot of travelers, myself included, actually want a uniform experience. What do you make of that? I think every hotel brand is thinking, how do we create products that better speak to a specific segment and audience? If you look at Hilton and Marriott today, they have 30 plus brands and growing. And that's because they see the opportunity in segmenting as do the operators and saying, let's create a product that fits this type of traveler and that type of traveler. And sometimes that same traveler may go to various different ones within my system. And they're trying to create an experience for the boomer generation that is traveling at unprecedented levels. And then the Gen Z millennial for that experiential, not necessarily brand conscious experience. We see an opportunity in that space when we talk about your experience, Michael, and you said, I like the standardization, but you would love after a long conference to be in a hotel and know that you like having hot tea and a gluten-free meal <laughs> to end the night. And they'll have that ready for you. And they ask you, is this exactly what you want? And do you want it in 30 minutes? When you wake up in the morning and you have to drive somewhere, you have an Uber waiting for you because it knows you. That's the level of personalization that you can create within a standard hotel product. So you're saying there's the millennial hotel product. <laughs> there's a millennial hotel experience within the standard product, which makes it great for the hotel. Deals. I love it. I love it. And that's fascinating when you get down to the level of personalization and how things changes. You touched on this at your AGM and investor conference about personalization. Others talked about it too. You had Chris Nassetta, CEO of Hilton, talk about this as well. How much does personalization matter in the hotel consumer experience and what can be done to continue to improve and augment that? It, it's extremely important. At first, it was about standardization on travel. Recently, we've seen people dive into the reviews of a place and what's happening, and it's all reactive rather than proactive. And I think brands started to realize that they needed to be more proactive with their consumer and they didn't know enough about the people staying there. So they've gone above and beyond now to incorporate different tools and means of understanding their base before they arrive at the hotel. And the operators now are as well, because before it was the operators are not connected to the guests to the same degree. They do have the on-site sales team and corporate booking guests in hotel rooms. And you do see repeat business that way and loyalty but that was a lot on the business side. A lot of the leisure had come through the other channels and travel agencies. And it was difficult to 
have visibility to that consumer. I think that's changing now. We're getting connected. You're having the ability to text directly with the hotel, instantaneous real-time feedback, and then prior to arrival feedback where you know what they want, what type of pillows, what type of temperature controls, and you're providing that for them. It's always been important, but I think with the advent of technology and the way that people are booking, it's become more so. So what's the future of hospitality investing in terms of where the right place to allocate capital to from a location perspective, type of hotel segment to focus on when it comes to the, tr- the consumer, the traveler? That's a great question. I think that we take a broad view. There's a lot of different important aspects when you're talking about investing in hospitality. Markets that have been depressed, if we know and we see the opportunity for growth out of that market, we talked about international travel being down significantly in some markets that were gateway cities and that have had challenges politically, et cetera, but we're still going to see an uptick there. And if the value has dropped to a certain degree, we're going to invest in that space and capitalize on that supply, demand, imbalance, and that projections that we have in forecast. But generally speaking, the lifestyle, experiential product, and for us, the more full-service categories of those products is the most attractive. For all of the reasons we were just talking about in terms of creating a unique experience for the traveler and for a a diverse set of travelers, where you can tap on somebody that was looking to book this for their corporate retreat, for their wedding, for a quick weekend because they want to check out the new city or the new mountain town, etc. I think that is going to factor heavily into how we invest in hospitality. I think you had another part to that question that I might have missed. Just in terms of who the focus should be on when it comes to hospitality investing, is it a certain type of consumer that's going to drive and be the tailwind for hospitality investing, generating returns? There's a lot of different sectors that are going to benefit from just the growth in, in travel generally. I think that large corporate only hotel is going to suffer or needs to be reinvented. However, there are so many opportunities within travel, within the different demand segments. When we talk about the boomer generation, as we mentioned, and the millennial Gen Z, there's certain products that bring them all together. And there are some that are just specific to the audience and, and all can be great. Some are more traditional, grandiose type ex- experiences, but they hit the note for that specific traveler in that market. And then there's the new trendy, super technological hotel where Everything is automated and that's a certain segment. And I think it's being able to understand those within certain markets and price points that really outperform. At the end of the day, construction costs have gone up. I think we need to always be cognizant of what segment are you going for and at what price range. That's why I mentioned that we're focused more on the upper upscale segmentation. We've seen that the top 10% of earners or the ones that spend 40% in the economy. And that population isn't going to suffer significantly from a business casual recession. And that also goes for the luxury segment. It used to be that luxury was not really a great place to invest in as a hotel owner, operator, developer. And that's changed as well. So we're pushing that boundary uh, because of the amount of demand for that unique luxury experience. And it's hard to develop. So there's a sig- significant barrier to entry there. You mentioned one thing, construction costs being a challenge. I'd imagine many people are aware of the maturity wall and CMBS. That may not be as pertinent to real estate as more commercial real estate in general. But those are two things that could possibly pose a risk to hospitality investing. What maybe those two things or others are you most worried about right now in hospitality investing? From our portfolio standpoint, we're in great shape. We did a lot of CMBS uh, loans in the last cycle. There was a moment in time where uh, we were regretting that during COVID. And I only say that because of what we saw rates drop to. And then obviously now today, we're sitting at a great below market fixed rate over that 10 year. Again, that just goes back to structuring the deal the right way. There was also a lot less leverage in the system back then. So when we look at CMBS in general, I'm less concerned for those maturities. I think owners of those hotels that had to inject during COVID or or were unable to, and therefore have to reinvest in the property due to the typical cycle of renovation 
are going to have challenges. And there's going to be opportunities, but not as widespread as people think, again, given that lower leverage in the system in general and CMBS and the longer maturities that are the 2016, 17, 18 vintages, because 19 people were already feeling like the market was overheated. The volume actually dropped in transactions. I think there was less CMBS issuances of hotels then. What you're looking at is some amortization, less overall leverage. And that's why you're still seeing a bid ass spread. Do I think opportunity is going to come? Yes, primarily on the investing side, when you're looking at the floating rate or bridge loans that got taken out in 2020. You're opening a hotel during that period, or you're refinancing with the lower rates. You buy a cap, caps are expiring, two to three year caps, or simply you've added mezzanine loan on top of it because you're doing a interest only structure and you could support the debt service. And now you are more over levered than some of the other, we talk about CMBS, you have a significant change in underwriting from where you were. We mentioned fundamentals are back, but you may need a big reinvestment for whatever time you are in the cycle. That's where I see opportunities for transaction. And I'm excited from our side. And that applies to all real estate, but we're also seeing rates starting to come down, which then that counterbalances. This year, we talked about three potential you know, cuts. So this may be a very short window and not very deep, depending on how the owner can figure out capital. And so we're Constantly monitoring from the debt, as we mentioned, our platform, we lend, we develop, we acquire hotels. It's a very interesting time for us. Interesting to think about what investors are most interested in. You have a customer base of over 1,200 investors. It's pretty impressive what you've done working with the individual investor channel to be able to both manage and then also help them allocate to a variety of hospitality investment opportunities. What, if any, insights are you gleaning from your LP base as to what they're most interested in right now? What we've seen over the last couple of years has been a draw to our credit product, where we've structured over a billion dollars of loans to third-party hotel owner operators, developers, uh, mostly existing product. Again, not much new development going on. Great yields relative to our attachment point. We are coming in with the MES piece, but we're quoting the whole loan and then laying it off with senior partners who like that we have this acquisitions development operating platform because we form a, a sense of backstop to their position. Again, we're not loan to own, we're loan not afraid to own. We understood value based on all our data and our metrics and where it was coming in during that time. So we were able to build up a, a nice portfolio during this turbulent time in hospitality. And now that fundamentals are back, again, the ability to access this product and be a trusted name in the credit space within hospitality is important. There is more competition. There is, again, that shrinking of spread and yield when we're looking at other players looking at hospitality because fundamentals are back. So now we're seeing a shift in our investors getting attracted to our acquisition opportunities and our development opportunities. I think both of those have great tailwinds given the dynamics in the market. I think that we've been able to structure them appropriately. We're one of the few groups that's able to access cheaper cost of senior debt to facilitate this and, and to, to, to generate meaningful 20 plus percent IRRs to our investor base when you're talking about acquisitions development. Within the lending space, we've been focused on 10 to 15% yields for our investor base. And that's without back leverage on our side, just because we're pursuing MES from 50 to 70% uh, LTC. So we're seeing a shift. I think private credit is still going to be a massive demand uh, driver for investors everywhere, but we're able to communicate the value proposition of demand, supply, and value within acquisitions and development that is resonating with investors. I think we touched on some of the products that we have on the Florida coast and the unique barriers to entry there and the long-term play for these investors, they get very excited for that type of direct connection to a thematic investment. I, I want to touch on something that takes this kind of to the future, which is not only have you managed this very large investor base, but you've built and are continuing to build technology to enable alts to move into the mainstream. What have some of the lessons learned from seeing other technology platforms that you're now applying to what you're building at Driftwood? Oh, so many. It's been incredible to look back over the last 10 years, really since we launched the capital arm targeting 
accredited investors for our opportunities with this evergreen fund structure to, to back it. The growth is something that I had not anticipated. It just goes to show the demand, as we talked about, for accessing alternatives in this fashion from this base that is now grown exponentially via the wealth advisory channel, et cetera. We think of hotels, we think of how do we connect to all of these different consumers out there. We had the rise of online travel agencies, Expedia, you name it, et cetera. That challenged the traditional, but the traditional GDS was still relevant. And you had the brand channel, which has grown and competed with the online travel agency and has its own value proposition of coming direct. And then you have the hotel owner, an operator that has its own team, boots on the ground, dealing with the local players and booking, et cetera. That's all the combination that you get to fill your hotel on a daily basis. And if you apply that to alternatives, there are so many channels that are just growing. It used to be institutional or friends and family. Now you can access 10, 15, 20 different platforms, all catering to a specific niche that as a sponsor, as a GP, you can go and leverage and, and see if they like the deal. And most of them are deal specific, even if you have a relationship with them. First, they value the sponsor and then the deal. And so you're going to say, okay, let me see if this group wants it. Let me leverage my own network, which we've grown extensively in the marketing side of that in the direct channel. Let me grow the, the wealth channel. Let me tap the institutional. How do you start combining it all and managing that? And the managing it is what was lagging a little bit. As some platforms have grown in the space. We've leveraged some of them. And as I was telling you, the pain point is that we have 30 different things from data sources to managing investors and reporting, and they don't all speak to each other. So creating that single source of truth is critical. I think it's a conversation that most people in alternative space are talking about, especially at the institutional level, at the big brand level. But we're doing it at the mid-scale level because it's such an opportunity for people to access our niche product directly or indirectly through these, but you have to be able to cater to them at an institutional level or at every different facet. And that to me is something that we've been heavily focused on. So at first, I think creating a, a capital platform built on this track record, how to see things from a sponsor perspective uh, as it relates to also managing the distribution that not many groups do or have. We've been that all-in-one. We saw firsthand the challenges. And many times I thought, oh, well, why haven't we created a platform yet to do this? And now I'm glad that we haven't because you learn so much from what works, what doesn't work. How do we put it all together? And really the advent of AI and what's happening there, there's a lot of tech debt in the space. And you and I talked about it. The opportunities today are incredible. You're bringing up a really interesting point, which is where I wanted to take this next, which is you've had the benefit of being a follower in that sense. There are other platforms that have been built in various ways, obviously not necessarily from a sponsor like yourself. They've been platforms themselves to start, but they didn't necessarily have the, the foundation that you've been able to build on. What would you say is the biggest thing that was missing in this space that you want to add to it by bringing technology to the space? Again, I want to take the sponsor perspective here. I think that everything that's happened in the industry has been important for its growth from education standpoint, from you know, access, but a lot of it was focused on the channels, separate distribution and marketing and filling in that investor base, separate from the managing of the investment opportunities and connecting all of that and the various channels and being that interoperable glue from the outset of a sponsor going out and looking for a deal. How do you inbound those deals? How do you then transfer everything that you're doing into one singular location and distribute that? Because investors want to trust. And ultimately, if they're only getting through a channel, a specific deal, they may not have the holistic track record and that's still being handed off on a manual spreadsheet. They may not know all of the opportunities that you're bringing to the table or the different product types that you have. And I think that the ability to create differentiated products, the ability to understand that consumer and what they're looking for and to make the life of the sponsor easier, the amount of cost that we've had to add to enable this to function well has been sizable. And I think there's a massive opportunity in making that more efficient to continue scaling. So for me, it's how do we now stitch together this framework in a better fashion for sponsors, that's our focus. And we're starting with our own product. It's a fascinating foreshadowing into some of the things that you're doing. 
I think there's probably so much more we could talk about, if not for time. So I want to ask... <laughs> Next session, I'll share a little bit more about what we're doing. I think it'll be exciting when we do launch. You bet. Once the tech platform is launched and built out, I think that'd be fascinating to, to do a deeper dive. I want to end this podcast with asking a question that I ask every guest. However, I'm going to ask a slightly different question before that but is related because we're, we're talking about hotels here. So the first question of what will be a two-part question about guest favorites is what is your favorite hotel that you have within the Driftwood portfolio and why? Wow. Great question. Okay. So favorite hotel has to be the Hilton Cocoa Beach. And I say that because it was the only hotel in our portfolio that continued to distribute dividends during the pandemic. It was a great investment that we um, actually had initially made with an institutional partner in 2012, when the area had suffered not only post financial crisis, but post ending of the NASA program. And that entire area, obviously, there's the, the beach demand, etc. But it thrives on the space industry. So coming in and acquiring this beachfront hotel that really looked like an office building on the beach because it's all glass. It looks like black glass. And, you know, coming in at that time, it, it probably seemed like a contrarian play. We we bought that actually from Blackstone with another institutional partner, HIG. And we added a tiki bar on the beach and then grew that in three years from 2 million NOI to 5 million NOI. We didn't do much to the rooms product. It was just seeing what was happening in the area. We had the privatization of space. We're seeing what's happening with the port over there, the growth in cruise travel, the connectivity to Orlando and how much growth there is in Orlando, and just the beautiful beach that's there with the barriers to entry that are significant with a small beach town like Cocoa Beach. So we grew that. And then I think at that point, it was a good exit opportunity. We talk about how institutional investors think and react. And that was a good time to exit for them. And with our base, we said we can now leverage our uh, new capital platform uh, that we were growing and make this a longer term play because of the thematic aspects we just discussed of the investment. So we uh, syndicated that one. It was one of our earlier syndications uh, through our capital platform in 2015. And, and I remember talking with the lender about our syndication platform. It was interesting because obviously we had to walk through the mechanics of how in investors come in post-closing. What does that mean from the loan docs and the know your customer? How do we get them comfortable? There's so many nuances that when we think about enabling uh, ultimate access to, to this product type. But at the end of the day, we've now scaled this to over $10 million of an NOI upcoming. The value has tripled since, and it was already an incredible buy. And we just finished a renovation of Update because all of these years have gone by and we haven't been able to renovate the product given given how much uh, occupancy year-round there is. So I love that hotel. Not only is it a beautiful uh, location, but amazing investment returns. And we're doubling down in that area. I think that we talked about the, the Western development that we have going on. So maybe my, my new favorite will change as we have an incredible product in Miami that that. I'm extremely excited about developing as well in the coming months. But since those aren't built, I'm sticking with Hilton Cocoa Beach for now. Well, my, my next question is, what's your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? So that gives you a chance to share something else, despite your excitement for the, the Cocoa Beach property. <laughs> favorite alternative investment? Well, it was crypto for a little bit, but that changed. I've invested in smaller uh, startups that are related to our space, whether it's the fintech or the prop tech side. And I'm excited about those. They're still in early phases though. So I, I wouldn't be able to really tell you with certainty that they're my favorites. <laughs> they have good potential. Let's put it that way. I think one of my favorites right now is actually, uh, I mentioned to you, Vested is an interesting product for me because uh, it's a friend of mine that uh, now leads it. He's been able to access early stage to late stage companies uh, at scale through an innovative outreach program where they're applying statistical modeling and smaller allocations based on whichever companies hit that statistical model and have uh, a need an employee side to transact on their options. So uh, exercise their option in one way or fashion. They're able to provide financing for that 
and therefore get in that pricing that is attractive. And by spanning it at a broader gamut, I think it makes it you know easier to invest in this space when you don't have all of the research or a VC platform to back. I've also invested in a few funds that, that are exciting, even in the crypto space. I think I mentioned to you, I invested in Polychain Fund, also this amazing fund tied to longevity. But there's less visibility for me there and more of a trust in the long term. Whereas invested, I see the dynamic component of portfolio building and also overflow opportunities. So I like that. I love it. You're providing such a great window window into so many different parts of the alt space beyond real estate, which in and of itself is fascinating and, and, and a huge part of the alt universe, given the size and scale that the, the real estate space occupies. But I think it shows that being well-diversified is important and you're well-diversified across the alt space. Fantastic window into the hospitality world, but also beyond. So thanks, Carlos. A pleasure to have you. Always enjoy our conversations. So thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. It was great to be on and, and thank you for everything that you do and bringing the knowledge of alternatives to uh, the general public. I've learned a lot from your podcast. So Excited to continue listening and hoping to be on again soon. Appreciate that. Well, what you're building is applying a lot of that learning from many of the people in this space. So excited to see how you continue to build and grow Driftwood. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, Carlos. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sidgmore and at Gozalt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going